for joining us on another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study Podcast, taught by Pastor Kirk Hall. We pray that through this podcast that you would grow your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, please open your Bibles and follow along as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truths to your heart. Amen. You guys, go ahead and open your Bibles up and... Turn your eyes and your attention to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. Remember last week we looked at the mystery revealed in Christ as Paul laid that out for us very clearly. And in this 14th verse, what's going to happen is he's going to pick up where he he began to start. Remember if you would, um, back in verse 1 of chapter 3. Um, he started this. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. And then if you look in your Bibles, there's this big, long line out. That means he's going to hold that thought for a second. And we're gonna, he, he then went into some teaching, and that's what we've been covering the last few weeks. We've been looking at those teachings. And now what's going to happen is when we get to verse 14, um, we're going to get back into his original thought in prayer. He's going to be offering this prayer for these believers here. Remember who he is addressing. Who is he addressing? We learned this in chapter 1. He's addressing the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we're looking at this prayer tonight. We're going to to be breaking it down, uh, Paul's prayer for the saints. Um, And in this, we're going to see so much truth. Uh, We're going to see his prayer um, for these believers that they would walk in what they have received in Christ. Walk in obedience to those truths that he's laid out for us in the past several lessons. So let's read it together. Verse 14, we'll read all the way through 21, and then we'll break this down tonight and get you out of here at a reasonable time, at least before 1030 or 11. So it says this, it says, for this reason, it's going to be a very important statement, as we will see, as I told you when we saw that statement the first time, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we, can, than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul ends there with a doxology as Paul is known for doing and Usually when you see Paul give a doxology, that means he's going to transition in his teaching, and we're going to see that. He's been giving us a lot of theology of who we are in Christ. He's been telling that to the the church and the saints there. He's been teaching that to us as we have followed along with that. Now he's going to give this doxology after this prayer, and we're going to move into some practical teaching in in how to live this Christian life when we get to the next three chapters and looking at four, um, five, and six of Ephesians. But before we do that, I want us to break this prayer down. I want us to see first, as you have there before you, the purpose of Paul's prayer. He says, for this reason, 
that first part. For this reason, remember Paul's now continuing what he started, and as I've said already, in verse 1. He, he then opens this discourse on the mystery of Christ that he had graciously been called to reveal not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, the fact that he had been called to offer the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, that, that mystery had been hidden throughout the ages and has now been revealed in Christ. He made that very clear. He's going to return to this train of thought for this reason. He's, tell, he's told them all of the reasons for why he does what he does, for why they are who they are. Now he's going to offer up his prayer. I want us to see the objects of his prayer as we look at the, the purpose of Paul's prayer. The object of his prayer, of course, we know he's praying for the saints. Right? He's praying for the saints there that he's addressing in this letter. But I believe as well he is praying for all the saints who will and have existed throughout the ages. And we see that prayer as we unfold it, uh, pointed toward God on behalf of the objects of his prayer who are the saints. He has already taught this group of believers some things. And we see that term for this reason. I want us to talk about what that really means as a whole before we go into this prayer. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, for this reason, he's praying for these people because they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Remember that when we were there? He's praying for this group of people because they have been chosen and predestined unto salvation. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. He's praying for this group of people because they are, according to Ephesians 1, 6, adopted as sons. Also, he's praying for them because Ephesians 1, 7 taught us that they have redemption through the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. I want us to see the objects of his prayer. He's praying for the saints, those who have become and are what he is telling them that they are for this reason, because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, because you have been chosen and predestined unto salvation, because you have been adopted as sons, because you have forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, and because you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember 1.13? He spoke of that promise to them, also because they were regenerated from spiritual death by God's sovereign grace. 2, verse 5. And because... The Gentiles have now been included, who were once alienated, without hope, without God. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that. He's saying, because of these things, because of all these mysteries that I have unveiled to you that are now known, I'm lifting you up in prayer. Because both Jew and Gentile are now one, the body of Christ. 2.13. Because all believers are equally part of God's unified family what we know now as the church, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. For this reason, because all believers are being constructed into a temple where God dwells by His Spirit. Remember when we learned about that in chapter 2, verse 22. He's building this temple for Himself where He dwells. Paul says, for this reason, for these things that we have covered from chapter 1, which we have seen it, for these people we will have been from the beginning of the letter, where we are here in this prayer, he says, for this reason. Remember the last thing that we covered last week? For this reason, because you have heard and it has been revealed the mystery of Christ. 
that was kept hidden for so long, now it's been revealed to you. And thankfully so, for those of us who are here today who have heard of the gospel, that, that mystery that has been revealed so that we could believe and know Christ and be saved and forgiven of all of our sins. So we see the objects of his prayer are the saints, those people who he has been talking to since the beginning of this letter. It's a very important thing that we see him praying for other believers because it's a lesson for all of us. Shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we recognize people for who they are in Christ? And shouldn't we lift our brothers and our sisters up who are in the faith alongside of us? So we see the objects of his prayer, but I want us to see, secondly, this and the purpose of Paul's prayer, the objective of his prayer. We see the objects, the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus, that, that has been the object of his address this whole time. But in verse 13, he uses this, again, he says this, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And then he says, for this reason. For this reason. Now we see the objective of his prayer is so that those saints won't become discouraged. Now I want us to back up for a moment in our mind and see what Paul has been setting up here. He has been telling them who they are in Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done for them, how he, he before the foundations of the earth, set out to save them and had a plan for their life. He's spoken much about God's grace in Christ Jesus. He's spoken much about, and we've used this term over and over again, the mysteries that have been revealed, the grace of God to the Gentiles. And now he says, I'm writing all of these things so that you might be encouraged. And above that, I'm going to pray for you now. Because of who you are, because of who you are in Christ, I'm going to pray for you for this reason. The objective of this prayer is this, that believers would be encouraged by their position in Christ. What an encouraging thing. As we've gone through this and we've seen who we are in Christ and what our position really is in Christ, we see His marvelous grace. We see His plan that's beyond anything that we can even imagine. We see the riches, the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus that we have been given that we could never earn on our own. That's encouraging stuff. He says, for this reason, because of who Christ is, because of what he's called me to do by his grace, and because of who you are as saints, and because you see that I am suffering, I want you to be encouraged. Remember, he was a prisoner, but he was a prisoner of Christ. He's making that clear again. I don't want you to be discouraged because I'm suffering. So what does Paul do here? What an amazing thing. I'm suffering, and I'm going to pray for you. And so can you... Imagine this for a moment, if you would. They're in imprisonment that had Paul confined in house arrest. They're in Rome. He, chained to a centurion, says, just a second, man. You're going to have to kneel down because these chains aren't long enough. I'm going to kneel. I'm going to lift up my brothers in Christ so that they're not discouraged about what's going on in my life. So that they're not discouraged about what's going on in their life, or so that they don't become discouraged about what they may face, just as I have faced it, and just as Christ has faced it, and just as we all know, we as Christians will face suffering and persecution to some degree at some point in time. So the objective of his prayer is to encourage the brothers in Christ, that these believers would, by Paul's prayer, they would grow, they would understand who they are. That in understanding who they are and growing, and I hope you will grow through this as well, 
In doing that, they would receive great encouragement from the Lord. Here's what Paul was doing. He's saying this to the Ephesians. I'm praying for you guys. Now, if you're a believer here who's ever gone through a trial, ever gone through a struggle, ever gone through a battle, that is music to your ears. That is the greatest thing that you could hear with your human ears when another brother in Christ comes up to you, he puts his arm around you, and he says, I know that you're in the battle, but I'm praying for you. Just this last week, after one of our services, a young man came up to me, put his arm around me, said, thank you for staying true to the Scriptures, something to that degree. Thank you for being bold. I said, man, I appreciate it. I appreciate the encouragement. The greatest encouragement he gave me, you know what he did? Before he left, he said, can I pray for you? I said, you bet you can pray for me. There's nothing more encouraging to know that there are other believers praying for you. Let me encourage you, man. When, when God does put that certain man, maybe it's a man in this room, upon your heart, I don't think it weak or feminine in any way. Send out a message to that person and say, hey, I'm praying for you, brother. When that brother confides in you and says, you know what, I'm going through a struggle. I need you to pray for me. Hey, stop right then. Don't, don't waste any more time. Put your arm around him, right? Embrace your brother in Christ and pray for him immediately. What an encouraging thing. There should be nothing else that encourages us more than to know that people are praying for us. I know this. Since the boiler room uh, prayer ministry has started here at Key Life, I know this. Every time I step behind this pulpit, that there are individuals who are specifically praying for me. And it is a great encouragement. Why? Because I know this. On my behalf, there are brothers and there are sisters who are petitioning the very throne of a sovereign God, asking Him to equip me, asking Him to give me strength, asking Him to give me clarity. And you know what? I experience all of those things, and it is so encouraging just to know that those people are lifting me up. This is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's saying, hey guys, don't be discouraged because of me. Because ultimately, we're going to win in the end because of Christ. I'm praying for you. One of the darkest times of his life, imprisoned by the Romans, he doesn't say, hey, all of you free believers out there, pray for me. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you don't become discouraged or afraid because of what I'm going to. The objective of his prayer was to encourage his brothers. And again, there is no more encouraging words than to hear that from a brother in Christ. What is he saying? I'm standing in the gap for you. I'm lifting you up. I got no strength to offer you, but I know who does, and I'm praying for strength from the Father. Paul was doing that for these believers, showing his love, showing his compassion, showing his care for them. So we see quickly as he starts out there in verse 14, for this reason, because of who you are, because of who I am, I'm an apostle called by God to minister to you, and I'm going to keep doing that, and I'm going to keep doing that as long as I have breath in my body, and I'm praying for you even now. You see the purpose of Paul's prayer. We also see, secondly, in verse 14, the posture of Paul's prayer. It says in verse 14, the second part, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Uh, though this could refer to his physical posture, and I, and I believe in this situation, it probably does. It's really irrelevant if he's kneeling with his legs. Uh, he's obviously kneeling with his heart, and that's most important. 
Scripture never demands that we have any certain physical posture in prayer, right? Some people think, well, you have to pray kneeling, or you have to pray sitting, or you have to pray standing, or in the south, right? Take your hat off, or God will not hear your prayer through that ball cap. Now, we know this. God's going to hear your prayer through that ball cap. That's your grandma talking. That was her tradition, and, and I don't pray with a hat on my head, nor do I wear a hat, hat indoors if I go in someone's house, because my grandma raised me that you just don't do that. There's nothing biblical about that. I know that offends some of you because your grandma made you think that it was biblical. There's nothing biblical about that. In fact, when I went to Jerusalem in, in order to go to the Western Wall and to pray, you actually had to have a hat on your head to even go to the wall and pray because that's their tradition, that a man has to cover his head with that hat when he goes to that wall. If you didn't have one, they would sell you one. And if you ever go there, you'll find out. They'll sell you whatever you need. And uh, so... Um, their traditions and our traditions, of course, somewhat different. But what Paul's talking about here is our posture in prayer spiritually. Though he may have, and I like to think that he was, kneeling. Um, there's no indication that he was physically kneeling there. But he was spiritually kneeling. Um, we see in Scripture there are times when people kneel in prayer. I want to give you a quick lesson on prayer so that you're not confused about this. We know that Daniel chapter 6 Verse 10, Daniel, it says this now, chapter 6, verse 10 says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows, with the windows open uh, toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So we know that the decree came out that you can't pray, and if you do pray, uh, then you're going to lose your life. And Daniel said, I'm going to pray because that's what God told me to do. And Daniel, not in defiance, Daniel in devotion to the Lord. It's what he'd always done. He didn't stop what he was doing. He kneeled before the Lord, and he prayed. So we see Daniel kneeling there. We see in Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from, uh, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. So we see there, there is a prayer, and he fell to his knees, right, raising his hands. Well, well Daniel didn't have his hands raised, so were, were his prayers less effective? No. But they didn't have a posture in their prayer, their, their posture, kneeling. The psalmist said this, come, Psalm 95, verse 6, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his, hear his voice, he goes on and gives instructions. But the posture of prayer there was what? Kneeling. Acts chapter 20, when he had said this, this is Paul, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Paul physically knelt down there, and that's why I make the assumption that he did probably physically kneel down when he's praying for the Ephesians. But there are other postures in Scripture as well, and that's what I want us to see before we get into the true posture here that matters. Uh, Numbers chapter 20, verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. They, they fell on their face. Uh, they, they fell as dead men. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 11 Verse 13, we see this. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelathia, son of Benai, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? He fell down, face down. We see Ezekiel. That's his posture there. He wasn't kneeling. Was it okay? Was it acceptable to God? Yes, it was. We see that there are those who find themselves completely prostrate on the ground. First Kings chapter 18 Verse 39, 
You say, Kirk, why are you giving, me, giving us all these lessons on prayer? I want you to understand that when Paul says that I'm kneeling, there's so much more to it than just the physical posture. I want you to understand that in your life, and I think that it would do us good to know that. 1 Kings 18.39, they found themselves prostrate before the Lord. Deuteronomy 9.18, Moses found himself prostrate before the Lord. 1 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 30, we see that they're standing. They were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. They were to do the same in the evening. There was the command to, to stand and pray. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. Oh no, this really confuses us. David went in, sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I, the sovereign Lord? What is my family? You have brought me this far. David sat down before the Lord. What I want you to see here is Paul's posture in this was humble intercession. So when we see the term kneel, yes, it could be physically kneeling, but most importantly, it was a spiritual posture of kneeling. It doesn't really matter if you find yourself standing. It doesn't really matter if you find yourself face down on the ground. It doesn't matter if you find yourself with your arms raised to heaven and your eyes to heaven. Did the the Lord not look to heaven? Give thanks to the Father? Did he do it wrong? No, but in all these situations, these men spiritually were kneeling their hearts to God. That's the importance of this. This posture of kneeling indicates some things. So when we see that Paul says, I kneel before the Father, he wants them to know the posture of his prayer. What is this all about? What would that mean? Well, Kneeling indicates some things. Write this down. Reverence, honor, and awe. Right? First aspect of this is reverence, honor, and awe. He's kneeling before the Father saying, you are sovereign God of all. You are God Almighty. Is that not how we ought to approach God in prayer? Is that not what Jesus instructed us to how we should approach the Father? Right? When we pray, we should say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come to him humbly, in reverence, and honor, and all. That, that's what kneeling really means. We, we see also kneeling gives the connotation of submission. You're my master. You're my Lord. I'm your servant. Now, when someone would come and kneel before the king, they would kneel before the king, bow their heads in humility, and be at the king's disposal. Now, wouldn't it be proper for us when we approach the king of kings and lord of lords that we come with the same attitude of heart Kneeling before him, Paul says, I'm kneeling before the Father on your behalf. I am humbly petitioning God the Father, submitting to him as master and Lord. How about dependence? He's showing that I depend on God on your behalf. He's saying I'm kneeling in dependency. I need God to work on behalf of the brothers that I'm lifting up. We've already mentioned humility. Realizing how infinite God is, how finite we are. That ought to be how we approach prayer, period. God, I'm nothing, you're everything. Without you, I have no hope. That's why I'm coming to you in prayer. Because I can't get anything done. How about trust? Paul's letting them know, I'm trusting God for you. Trust, not in the prayer of Paul, the calling of Paul. Paul's saying, I am petitioning God. I'm kneeling before him. I am trusting him for you. That he would do some things. We're going to see what those things are in just a second. 
It's important that we grasp the posture of this because so many times we run to God frantic and just throwing him a, a list of wants and desires. Here's what I need you to do, God, because I messed things up. I, here, just fix this for me. Paul has a different attitude. I, I wish we could learn something from this. And that's why I've taken the time to really attempt to pull this out for you to see the posture of this prayer. The posture of trust and humility and dependence and submission and reverence and honor and awe and intercession. He is approaching God the Father on behalf of all of the brothers that he is addressing, interceding for them. I want you to stop for a second. Many of us fall into the trap of only praying when it is concerning us. What a model the apostle is giving us here of interceding on behalf of other brothers. Knowing where they are. Finding out where they are. Right? It's as simple as this. Hey, is everything going on in your life? Look, a lot of you guys try to lie, but it's all over your face. That's why we ask that question. You might as well be honest. Everything going on? Everything in your, in your life going all right? Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I'm cool. No, you're not. You're just like the rest of us. You're in a battle. You're in a struggle. So wouldn't it be a lot easier if we would just approach God humbly and say, you know what? I'm going to lift my brother Bobby up to you. I'm going to lift my brother Austin up to you. Right? This is what Paul's doing. He's interceding on behalf of the brethren. He's saying, I'm kneeling. He's offering them this lesson, the correct posture in prayer. Paul kneels to God on behalf of the saints. What an encouragement to us to constantly kneel before God on behalf of the saints. I can tell you this. None of us, none of us do this enough. I don't say that to beat myself up. I don't say that to beat you up. Shouldn't that be something that we constantly are aware of, right? That our brothers could possibly be in a discouraging situation. Paul is aware of that. He says, I know that you could become discouraged because of all the things that you're hearing that are going on concerning me. All the persecution that we are now beginning to face. But don't be. Don't be because I'm lifting you He's offering them hope through his dependency upon God for them. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For you. Because you're his. Because you're going through a tough time. The posture of Paul's prayer is to humbly kneel and to consult the Father on behalf of the saints. Let's look at the prayer in general. We're going to move into that. We've set it up nicely. We see his posture going into this. But let's look at the prayer, the petition of Paul's prayer. What is this prayer all about? Verse 15, he begins this, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide how long, how high, and deep is the love of Christ? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is the meat. That is the petition of this prayer. Let's break that down. Let's look at this. This is Paul's second prayer that we see in Ephesians. We saw the first one in 1, uh, verse 17, where he said, and he prayed, that the believers basically would be enlightened to the truth. 
The second prayer is not a prayer that they would be enlightened, but it's a prayer that they would be encouraged and equipped and empowered to be all that He has already told them in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of 3, who they are. Isn't that the breakdown most of the time in the lives of Christians? Becoming who you are in Christ. In fact, there are many people who, they, they are believers and they are saved and they spend their whole life, no one teaching them who they really are in Christ. Paul wants them to know that. He spent time enlightening, to, enlightening them to the fact that this is who you are in Christ. You Gentiles who are part of this church, you were at one time without hope, without God, but now you have been included into the promises. You were included into Christ's church. You are a part of the body. You are a temple that is being built where the Spirit Himself dwells. He's been teaching them all these things. Now what he's going to do, he's going to pray that this enlightenment would encourage and equip them for service. This is a prayer for the saints. As I've already said, Paul is obviously praying for those who know Christ, those who belong to the Father, to the family of God. Look how he starts this out. From whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He's talking about the church, the church on earth, the church in heaven, the church abroad. He's praying for the saints. Paul's obviously saying those who know Christ, who are a part of this family. Remember, the Gentiles, he let them know, you are included in this, along with the Jews who believe. All who have faith in Christ have been included into this family. Those who belong here. That's what he's praying for. He's not teaching that God is universally father of all when he makes that statement from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He's not saying... And everyone on earth is a child of God. Many people try to take that and they, they try to run with that. Only those who are in Christ are children of God. Those who are not in Christ are children of sin and they are children of Satan. There's so many scriptures that back that up, so many teachings even of Christ that back that up. He's saying this, my prayer is for you as the family of God. He's praying for those who have been reconciled to the Father by the sacrifice of the Son, those who truly have faith in Christ. So his petition begins, letting us all know who he's truly praying for. Then he prays for this, verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This is a prayer for spiritual strength. He's praying here for inner power from the Spirit. Now, if we go back to Jesus' promise, what did He tell His disciples? When the Spirit comes on you, you will receive power to be My witnesses. That word dunamis, that's exactly what word is used here where He is praying for these saints here at Ephesus. He's saying, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Inner power from the Spirit. Until we grasp the fact that we have inner power from the Spirit, we're never going to see outer power coming out of our lives. He's praying that they would understand, be equipped by that inner power from the Spirit. This proves that he's praying for the believers again. Why? Because he wouldn't be praying for the unbelievers because the unbelievers don't have inner power from the Spirit because they don't have the indwelling of the Spirit. Just as Romans chapter 8 tells us, they have no access 
to this internal power. He's letting them know that you will never walk in victory over your flesh until you're strengthened from within by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What was Paul doing? He was praying about what he needed to pray about, that they would be strengthened inwardly. You can just look at yourself in the mirror. Outwardly, guys, lots of you, myself included, we're wasting away. New wrinkles every day, more gray hair. But inwardly, right, what's happening? Inwardly, we're being strengthened as we grow and as we mature in the Lord. The Spirit is empowering us and strengthening us and maturing us in the faith. This is what Paul is praying about here. Spiritual strength for the believer. Do they need it? Let's ask this question. Do we need it? Of course we do. That's what he's asking and petitioning God on their behalf for. That they would be strengthened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Not only is this a prayer for spiritual strength, look at what, what 17 says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I want you to look at this very carefully. First look, you, it would cause you to ask the question of, why is Paul praying that Christ would live in believers if other scripture makes it very clear, as I've already mentioned, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that Christ lives in the believer? Why would he be praying that Christ would live in the believer? It seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Because it seems kind of obvious that he's praying for the believers. What is he saying here? Well, when we look at the Greek here, we're going to learn a little bit. The word for dwell here is not just to live in or abide in. It's a little bit different. It's a Greek word, katokeo. And that word katokeo means this, to be at home in. He's saying this, I am praying that Christ would be at home in you. So this is a prayer of sanctification, that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, that Christ would feel at home in you. Is Christ abiding in them? Yes. Is that promised? For all believers, absolutely, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. But he's saying this, I'm praying that he would do such a work in you that he would actually feel at home in you. It's more than just living in. It's, it speaks of being settled, settled at home. Now, those of you who have ever moved, not too long ago, I moved. What happens when you move, right? You get all your stuff, you throw it in boxes, you, you get a U-Haul or moving company, they move you to your new house, and for a while... It just doesn't feel like home, does it? Now, it is home. You live there. You go there every night, right? And every time you see someone, if they, know you, if they know you've moved, they ask you what? Have you gotten settled yet? They didn't ask you, are you staying in your new house? They knew that that was your house. They're saying, have you gotten settled? Does it feel like home yet? What Paul is praying for the believers here. He's praying that their lives, they would be a home where Christ feels settled in. He uses that term. It's a very important term that we understand that. We've stayed in places before, haven't we? Our mother-in-law's. Our crazy cousin's house. Well, we lived there. We abided there. We just weren't settled there, were we? I can tell you this, when we first 
began here at Key Life Fellowship. I moved my family from Arkansas, left the church that I was pastoring to come here to do this. I didn't know where I was going to live. I found myself living with my in-laws. Nothing against my in-laws. Was that my home? Yeah, for the time being. Did I live there? Oh, yeah. Went there every night. Was I settled? No. I was never settled there. I was never comfortable there. It wasn't my place. So we get the idea of what Paul is saying here. He's saying this, I, I want, and I'm praying to God because he wants your life to be a place where Christ is settled, where Christ is comfortable. Your life to be sanctified to such a place of righteousness and conformity to Christ that it feels like home when Christ dwells with you. What a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer of sanctification. I, I pray that, that someone would pray that for my life. May Kirk and his life grow to a point where Christ would comfortably dwell in Kirk. Not just that Christ would abide in Kirk and Kirk would just barely squeak by because of faith in Christ. No, but that, Christ, that Kirk would be sanctified to a point and become like Christ to a point that Christ would be settled. Remember, we, we learned this. Is he not building the believer into the temple where God lives? Well, he told us that. He just told us that a few lessons ago, didn't he? Now, it's one thing for it to be a place where God lives. What about a place where God is settled and comfortable living in? That's what Paul is talking about here. This is a prayer of sanctification. We see next that it's also a prayer not only of spiritual strength and sanctification. It's a prayer for supernatural insight into God's love. I love how Paul words this because it blows me away. Watch it. I'm going to read it all, second part of 17 to 19. I'm going to read it to you again. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He said, I want you to grab this. I'm praying that you will grasp this truth. How high and long and deep and wide is the love of Christ. And to know this love, watch what he says, and to know this love, watch this, that surpasses knowledge. I want you to think how foolish that sounds to our human ears. He says, I want you to know about something that surpasses knowledge. How can that be possible? Well, it can only be possible if God enlightens you supernaturally and gives you insight into the depths of that kind of love. You, you can't understand the love of God from your human minds. And Paul is praying this. He's saying, I know that. It's, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. You're, you're not ever going to figure this out. Oh, I have spent hours trying to figure out with my human mind, how could God ever love me to the degree that God loves me? Only to come to the conclusion of, I don't know how or why, but I know that he does. And I know that he does because the word of God says that he does. And it blows me away to think about how wide and how deep and how long, how high that love is. He's praying for supernatural insight into this kind of love. Going back to what he just prayed for them, that Christ would be at home in them, settled. When Christ is at home in our hearts, 
We're going to have a deeper understanding of His love, aren't we? When Christ is settled in us and we are settled in Christ and we are fellowshipping and we are communing constantly, there's going to be a deeper understanding of that love because He reveals that to us. We love because why? He first loved us. We begin to understand that. We'll begin to see that. Paul is praying that this would be so <clears throat> for these believers, that they would understand this. That his love would be accepted by them, even though never fully comprehended. There are many things in Scripture that we have to accept that will never be fully comprehended. Isn't it amazing that the love of God that saves us can never fully be comprehended? To know that. And that is the love that He lavishes upon us. A love we can't even comprehend. He says, I, I pray that they be rooted in that love. And everything stems from that. When he says that word rooted, you know what he's saying? That everything in their life that is produced comes because they are rooted in this love. The love of God. Not your love for God. You were here on Sunday. We talked about this a little. And we talked about Peter and his failures. Praise the Lord. Our salvation is not based on our love for Christ, but it's based on Christ's love for us. And he's saying that, I, I pray that you would know and be rooted in this love. Because if you're rooted in the love of Christ, you know what you're going to produce? Branches that are filled with the fruit of Christ's love. You're going to produce a tree, a good tree that bears good fruit, right? Because bad trees don't bear good fruit, and good trees don't bear bad fruit. So when he uses that term that you'll be rooted in this, it means so much. But that love that has been planted in you, and yes, when we first experience that love, isn't it a seed? We don't fully understand it. We can't. But he says, I'm praying for you believers that you will begin to understand it even more. That you would be rooted in this. That it may be the driving force behind everything that you do. That everything that you do, everything that you say, would stem from the love that God has given you. Not only that it would be accepted and understood, but that it would be applied that you would receive supernatural insight into the love of God and the depths of that love, the heights of that love, the width of that love, but also that it would be applied in your life. Understanding God's love is one thing. Applying it in our lives is a completely different thing, isn't it? He wants us to apply that. We must know it so we can apply it. The person who never applies the love of God there's a pretty good chance that they've never truly experienced the love of God. Because we are to love others, right? The way that God has loved us. Is that the case? We find ourselves doing that, loving others, like Christ loves others. Well, when you begin to understand the depths of His love, to see that it's beyond anything that we as humans could ever perform, then it's hard for you as a growing and maturing Christian to ever withhold love from anyone, isn't it? You will find yourself loving people that you once hated. You will find yourself forgiving people that you said, I can never forgive. Why? Because you grow in the depth of your understanding. You're rooted in this love of Christ. And because you're rooted in the love of Christ, you begin to understand that love more. And then you apply it and you offer that love to others. Many believers walk constantly in discouragement and in defeat 
Because they've never grasped, nor have they never applied God's love as defined by Scriptures. God's love, as Paul is praying for these believers here. As he says it in such a manner that we can understand it. He says, then I pray that you being rooted in love and established in that love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, why does he want us filled to the measure of all the fullness of God with the love of God? Why? Because when we're full, what happens next? We overflow. He wants us to be full because as we're full and we're constantly comprehending the depths of his love, when one more drop goes in, guess what? It overflows. And it overflows out of your life into other people's life. That's what we ought to want to desire and be as believers. One who is so full of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we continually learn more about this love. And as our cup is full to the brim, and we learn that next thing about the depths of His love, as He reveals that to us, that then causes an overflow to come out of our lives, and we love other people the way Christ has loved us. Paul's saying, I want this for the church. I want this for the believers. He wants that for us. Why? Because it brings God glory. It shows people exactly who He is. Right? God is love. How is man to know that? Unless the church overflows with that love to the lost world who needs to see that God truly is love. Now, he offers this prayer, and then he does this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, he stops and he gives a praise in the middle of this prayer or the end of this prayer. A doxology, if you would. The praise of Paul's prayer. Look at this and look at this with me. It's a doxology of praise. He's saying Here's what I'm praying that God would do for you, that you would know how, how deep and how wide and how high the love of God is. You would overflow with this. You would be rooted in this. And then he stops because he's overwhelmed. You know what just happened here, I believe? I believe Paul was writing to the church, talking to them about understanding the depths of the love of God, and he became overwhelmed. Have you ever been there in your prayer life when you're thanking God for things and you become overwhelmed and all of a sudden what you do, you just break into a fit of praise? A doxology. I've had those times in my life where I was contemplating, meditating on things that I had seen in the Word of God. Driving down the road. I have to pull my car over on the side of the road and just stop and have a fit. You know what I'm talking about? Where you stop and have a fit. You can't drive because you're not in a condition to drive. And all you can do is just stop and just praise God for all that He has done and all that He has revealed about Himself to you. Just don't worry that you're going to be late to wherever you're going. You probably are going to be late anyways. Just to stop and to, to give Him the doxology that He deserves. Paul does this here. He says, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He knew that He was petitioning God on behalf of these believers. And He says, And, and the God that I'm petitioning can do immeasurably more than all I could ever ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does He do? He gives a doxology. For what? 
God's limitless power. God's limitless power. The power that He reveals through His church. He's already spoken of these things, right? He's been writing about this. He's thinking about it again. He praises Him for His limitless power. He's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine in Christ. His limitless power as it's revealed through the church. Isn't that what He's praying for? That they would be overflowing and full with His power. His power, the limitless power that is received in Christ. When we're in Christ, is there a limit to the power of Christ? Do we have access to that power promised by Christ Himself that when the Holy Spirit comes on us, we will receive power, the power to be witnesses, to bring Him glory, to share the gospel, to make disciples, all the things that He's commanded us to do? His limitless power that lives in and through us, received in Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives in us, all of us who believe, all the saints. He gives a doxology of praise for God's limitless power to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. This verse is very special to me because I learned a lot about this in the process of Key Life Fellowship. I remember a time where I prayed, Lord, just send 50 people, 50 people to hear your word. And as God was faithful in doing that, my prayer shifted. The Lord just, just sent 50 families. And I'm overwhelmed at His limitless power. Every time I look around, uh, just last night, sitting out watching all the children playing on the playground before they went into Adventure Club. And see, I don't know how many kids. They look like ants. And think back to the time where I prayed for 50 people and 50 families, and how he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Our imagination of what God can do always falls short, doesn't it? Paul is sitting here and he's thinking about this. Now I want you to understand, he's thinking about this in prison. But he's still rejoicing in who God is because our situation does not change who God is. He's praising Him for His limitless power. And then he moves to praising Him for His infinite glory. What a doxology here. Praise God for His limitless power. When was the last time you just thought about that? God, you've, you've done in my life immeasurably more than I could ever even ask or imagine. He's sure done way more than we ever could deserve. But then to think of God's infinite glory. To Him be glory in the church. In Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul didn't say anything about himself. He didn't even allude to himself. He's so caught up in the infinite glory of God that he has to stop and he has to praise Him. The infinite glory that's revealed through His church. He's been talking about this for three chapters. He comes to a point where he's overwhelmed by it. Spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, the riches that he spoke of, the grace that he's spoken of, the mystery that has been revealed that he's spoken of. Now he's to the point where he's overwhelmed. I, I wish that we as men of God would get to that point more often, where we're just overwhelmed, and we can't help but really just to bust out in a doxology of praise for God's infinite glory and his limitless power. Revealed through his church, he also says revealed 
by Christ. When I read that statement, it reminds me of John 1.14, a verse that many of you are familiar with. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. It's talking about Christ, the Word, Logos. As we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote that being an eyewitness to everything that Christ did. He saw the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He testifies to that. Paul doing the same thing here. To him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the praise of Paul's prayer. He lifts his brothers up in in prayer. He postures himself humbly to do this. He then does this by the petition that he made, and then he praises God for who he is. May we see this prayer tonight. May we know that if we were to kneel before the Father in prayer tonight, just as he heard the prayers of Paul, he would hear our prayers on behalf of our brothers in Christ, not just in this room. Who was he praying for? The family of God everywhere, right? That they would know these things. I believe that if we would do that, God would hear our prayers just the same and that we would be overwhelmed by the fact that God can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine in Christ Jesus. So my prayer for each of you is this, that each of you would be strengthened. My prayer for each of you is that you would be sanctified. Is that not what Paul was praying for the believers? That they would be strengthened and that they would be sanctified and that they would understand the supernatural depths of God's love. It's my prayer for you. And that it would result in obedient, fruitful lives for the glory of God, for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That others would be drawn to faith and trust in Him because of what God has done in you. What a great picture of the apostle. Someone who we think of is of utmost importance who drops to a place of humility to offer up prayers for the saints. I would encourage each of you, brother, don't hesitate when prompted by the Spirit to kneel before the Father, to intercede for one another. There are many men in this room who are going through difficult times. Find them. Pray that God would show you who they are. It's real simple. Look for that person who's downcast. We wear it on our faces. Go up to him and say, brother, is everything okay? When he lies, tell him, I don't believe you. Let's kneel before the Father. Let Let me lift you up as Paul lifted up the believers in Ephesus. That you may know how wide How long, how high, how deep is the love of God? You may understand that. You may be rooted in that. That no matter what you're going through, that is what continues to carry you. Christ and His love. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you thanking you so much for this example and this prayer that was offered up on behalf of the believers nearly 2,000 years ago. 
God, may we learn from it. May we see the depths of it. Most importantly, may we see the depths of your love as Paul prayed for these believers. May we apply that in our lives, how we live, how we treat others. May we stop because we don't do it enough. And offer doxology and praise to you every time we notice your wonder, your majesty, your power. May you be exalted. May you be praised above all things. God, I pray for each of these men here tonight. I pray for them just as Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus, that you would strengthen them by your spirit inwardly so that their outward lives would be a representation of that inward strength, that dunamis power that you give to the believers. God, I pray that you would continue to sanctify them, that you would set them apart for your will and your plan in their life. God, I pray that you would supernaturally continue by your Spirit, through your Word, teaching them the magnitude of your love. That would be the element that propels their entire life. That they would love the Lord their God with this love. That they would love others with that same love that you've given. May you be glorified in all things. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have taught us tonight and all you continue to teach us. May we stand in all of you now. Please stand with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.